to my panel in studio this morning to help me go through some of the items in the news and in this morning's papers. Aoife Barry, Assistant News Editor at thejournal.ie. Good morning, Aoife. Larry Donnelly is a Boston attorney and law lecturer at NUI Galway. Morning, Larry. Good morning. And Jennifer Kavanagh is a law lecturer at the Waterford Institute of Technology. Morning, Jennifer. Morning. Uh, thank you all for coming in to be with us on a, a Sunday morning. Let's have a quick look at what's in the front pages of this morning's newspapers. Sunday Independent uh, leads with an interview with the White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, who reveals, among many other uh, bombshells, that Trump and Melania just read like each other which is a really low bar I think for a husband and wife combination uh, their main story however is 4,000 elderly wait 24 hours in A&E thousands of elderly patients have been left in chairs or trolleys for over 24 hours in Ireland's hospital emergency departments according to newly released statistics for the first three months of this year HSE figures show that 4,349 people aged over 75 had to wait around in emergency departments for more than 24 hours between January and March. The figures have been released in response to a parliamentary question from the Fianna Fáil health spokesman Stephen Donnelly. Uh, it's amazing how much over time you just begin to accept hospital overcrowding or 24-hour stays as being normalised. But, However, at the front page of the Sunday Business Post, government to insurers slash premiums if you want injury payouts reduced. Uh, the government is pressing insurers to commit to slashing premiums if personal injury payouts are reduced as part of a new offensive on the soaring cost of business insurance. Michael Darcy, Junior Finance Minister, has special responsibility for financial services and insurance. He met with the industry representative body Insurance Ireland last week to discuss a proposal that would commit insurers to lowering the cost of insurance should award levels be reduced. The move comes as new figures show that insurance referred 769 suspected fraudulent insurance cases to Gardaí in the 18 months until the end of June 2018 and that 18 solicitors have undertaken not to take referrals from claims claims harvesting websites uh, which claim to follow law society investigations. Uh, Also, farmers and drivers face penalties under a new carbon budget uh, also on the front page of the Business Post. Lead story on the Sunday Times this morning, Garda inquiry into Higgins' holiday links. The Higgins in question being uh, Uchtaron, the hair and Michael D. Higgins. Uh, John Mooney reports that Garda headquarters is conducting a secret investigation into the unauthorised disclosure to a number of newspapers of information around Michael D. Higgins' private holiday arrangements. The investigation follows a series of detailed media stories which revealed information about the precise arrangements, including details of the costs involved in protecting the president when he was involved, which appear to have come from internal Garda files. The investigation team is using covert techniques to identify the media's source, according to security officials. Uh, interesting that, actually, because I would have thought that all the holidays about security and, and the costs for Michael D. Higgins had all come out under freedom of information, but evidently not. Um, and also on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, green light to sell solar electricity back to the grid. Home owners with solar panels could earn €400 a year selling excess electricity into the national grid under a key proposal in Richard Bruton's climate plan going to Cabinet this month. Uh, Front page of the tabloids, meanwhile, uh, there is a cracking story on the front page of the uh, Irish Mail on Sunday, which actually, funnily enough, is the only one of the front pages today which explicitly uh, refers to Donald Trump, with the exception of maybe the, the Sunday Independent. Trump's advice... Use Twitter to fight back, Leo. US President tells the Taoiseach to adopt his social media tactics against detractors. US President Donald Trump advised Taoiseach Leo Varadkar that he should deal with any media critics in the same way that Mr Trump dealt with the actress and singer Bette Midler earlier this week, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. Uh, In their private meeting at Shannon Airport on Wednesday, Mr Trump asked Mr Varadkar how he was being treated by the press in Ireland. Varadkar replied with a laugh that the media had treated him a lot better at the start of his leadership, but he was treated fairly. Trump cited an incident from the previous night in which Bette Midler, a harsh critic, 
colleague of his had criticised him on Twitter and how he had led himself to be corrected on Twitter. Now, the following is the, the tweet, by the way, that Donald Trump posted on Tuesday night. Larry's already enjoying this. Washed up psycho Bette Midler was forced to apologise for a statement she attributed to me that turned out to be totally fabricated by her in order to make your great president look really bad. She got caught just like fake news media gets caught. A sick scammer. I would love to see Leo Varadkar taking on that tactic to Twitter just to see how he thinks it would go down. Uh, Front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, meanwhile, Lair B&B. Gang boss Mr. Flashy using holiday website to find new bolt holes after organising three murders in just eight days. Uh, Daily Star on Sunday leads with the death of the former Tottenham Hotspur star Justin Edinburgh who has died at the age of 49. Uh, and the Irish Sunday Mirror, well, you know, different uh, horses for courses, I suppose. A masked orgy at Country House. Uh, Randy Swingers romped in a posh country house during an upmarket sex orgy last night. The black tie oysters and champagne evening was held at a secret location in County Leash surrounded by acres of woodland so that no one will hear you moan. Uh, I take it from the, the nervous <laughs> giggling in the studio that all three of my panellists were actually secretly there last night. But uh, we will leave that until after the watershed. Um, thank you all again uh, for coming in. Jennifer Kavanagh, Aoife Barry and Larry Donnelly. Uh, Larry, we'll start with you. Are you at all surprised, actually, that given the, all of the, the attention that was paid to Donald Trump's visit earlier this week, that on all the front pages of the newspapers, there is really only one substantive story about Donald Trump and it's advice to Taoiseach about how to use Twitter? Uh, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose there was a maelstrom of media coverage uh, last week, and I, I suppose the, the president has now left. So I think uh, swiftly moving on, I suppose, in one sense, it uh, has to be said, you know, I, I was laughing as soon, and I probably shouldn't laugh, but uh, washed up psycho. These are not the words or the language or the demeanor one commonly associates with the president of the United States. Uh, and at this <coughs> stage, uh, you know, he continues to outdo himself uh, on every level. Uh, I think if we are to look at, and I, I, happen, I was in Dunebeg for the day uh, on Wednesday, a very interesting experience has to be said. Um, if we look at the media coverage of uh, what's happened and some of the commentary on the visit, uh, my one regret is I think that there was a lot of snobbery uh, in it, uh, I would argue, and in uh, some uh, element of what's colloquially known in the United States as Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, I think some of the things okay. that were said uh, about, for instance, about uh, journalists saying that they wouldn't let their daughters work at uh, at at the at Dune Beg. Mm. Uh, I think that really is extraordinary when you think of uh, how few options there are for employment in that area. And I think if we go down that line, uh, we'd find objectionable things about all potential employers. Mm. Uh, I think also the description of the the golf course as ghastly and grotesque scenes. These were some of the things that were said. Uh, and I think that's really deeply, deeply unfair uh, to the people of Dune Beg. And I think Kara Kelly of this parish has a mm. very, very good piece. Uh, I think rebuking some of that coverage uh, in today's Sunday interview. How did you find the environment of being in Dunebeg on Wednesday? Did you find it to be a, a ring of steel or was it more casual than people might have expected it to be? No, it was very difficult to get there. Uh, to get there, it took us two and, a, two and a half hours to get there from Galway and I was going down with somebody from RTE. There were guards literally everywhere and road closures were everywhere uh, and oftentimes it was down to uh, you know, what the particular guard you spoke to, what mm. kind of steer you were going to get as to whether you could get in. Once you got into the village, uh, it was a relatively laid back and calm atmosphere. Uh, and again, just to, to go back to the point I was making, uh, just fascinating to me, um, the, the, the warmth and the regard that they have down there for the Trump, for Donald Trump and for his family. In particular, uh, I met a barber who cuts uh, Eric Trump's hair uh, and literally kept talking to me about what a good guy Eric Trump yeah. is and how much he, he, he liked him. Doesn't and cut Eric Trump's father's hair very often though. No, I'd say not. But, but again, it's just, it's just indicative of uh, what the investment, I, I think those people they make a real distinction between Trump the politician and Trump the job creator mm. uh, and I'm not certainly not in a position to criticize them. 
No, fair enough. Um, Aoife Barry, uh, in your hat as assistant news editor of the journal.ie, how did you find the interest around Donald Trump's visit? Because it seemed to me at least that it was a, a really big deal on Wednesday and we waited to see exactly what he might say. And then once his his little informal press conference with Leo Varadkar had concluded that it was pretty quick after that that everyone's attention moved on. Yeah, I think there wasn't that much that really happened beyond him actually being there. So I think like what you're saying was the main newsworthy things were building up to the the press conference with Leo Varadkar and everybody was waiting for that to happen. People were really interested in reading all the stories about him. So everything that we had up on the site and we had like our live blog and things like that, that had a lot of interest. But there wasn't that much happened beyond them having the chats and beyond the kind of talk about Dunebeg and beyond the drinks that his sons had in, in Dunebeg that night. So a lot of the Trump visit was about people talking about what Trump did during the visit as yeah. opposed to anything really happening mm. um, and it was quite bizarre I felt in some ways watching the news conference with the Taoiseach and Trump because of there was a lot of strange unformed thoughts coming out of Trump's mouth which isn't an unusual yeah, it thing it was like beatnik poetry yeah it was like you know the, the border the wall you got a border we got a wall it's like oh, okay you're the president of the United States like I, I still can't quite get my head around I've watched so many press conferences <laughs> with Trump that every time one comes on I just think oh god no um, but because I just don't expect anything really fully formed to come out of his mouth and you can usually tell when somebody's written what he's saying because he's very disengaged when he was doing, he was reading out a speech with uh, uh, Theresa May earlier on in the week and he was just so deadpan and deadbeat reading it and as soon as he could interject a bit of his opinion a bit of his colour he got a lot more energetic and we saw that kind of energy when he talked to Leo and we saw that he was really trying to get on with him because he really does want to have a good relationship um, with Leo Radker but poor Leo I think was had the look of somebody saying I'm not too sure what this guy is saying so I'm just going to say nothing in case I start a diplomatic incident <laughs> if I pick him up the wrong way you know because he could Yeah um, Jennifer for Kavanaugh, given that that meeting only lasted for about 35 to 40 minutes and that was the entire extent of all of the official engagement between the Irish government and the visiting President of the United States and given that there were so many things that have to be crammed into that meeting, you're talking about visas and Brexit and trade and walls and you know the EU and all these other things that you have to, chat to, to um, try and accordion into the meeting. Does the whole thing not just really become just a banal exchange of sound bites behind closed doors and that ultimately we, we get ourselves into a, a tizzy about the diplomaticness and necessities and the, everything that goes with it of a visiting president when the whole thing is sort of pointless? Well, or is it, or is um, it look, kind of we, we've already had a number of shamrock ceremonies, as we like to call it, on Paddy's Day with uh, Donald Trump. So it was it was a visit due back to us. Mm. So it, to my mind, it was more a case of, look, we've ticked that off the list. He's come over. We've had the chats so we can go back over again on Patty's Day. I like that you both refer to it as the chats that like we now just have like yeah. bilateral meetings between the yeah. Taoiseach and the President yeah. of the United States <laughs> are now just officially there. I'm going to start using that when I go to the Oval yeah. Office next yeah. March actually just refer to it. The, the bilateral <laughs> chats between the two lads there. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, go on. But look, the, the whole thing about Donald Trump even saying to that Leo Radker should uh, deal with people on Twitter the way that he does. Mm. It's absolutely obvious that Donald Trump does not follow Leo Radker. Yeah. Because Leo Radker has actually taken on a couple of trolls, not calling them washed up psychopaths, yeah. but actually pointing out you're actually factually incorrect on this. So... Obviously, Donald Trump has put his foot in it again because if he was following Leo, he would know these things. Um, actually, on that, um, um, Larry Donnelly, there, there was some confusion this week about whether it was a good or a bad thing that tweet, uh, Donald Trump had not tweeted about his Irish trip in any way or shape or form. That we don't know whether it's it's kind of good to go under the radar and just to, to get him in and out without making too much of a fuss. But also, given that he tweets about anything and everything, including Bette Midler... The fact that he didn't tweet about Irish hospitality for two days might be seen as a little bit of a snub. Yeah, you could see it that way or you could breathe a, a, a big sigh of relief that he didn't say anything. And I think it was no 
notable that he didn't rise to the bait. Uh, Michael D. Higgins made some very provocative comments just before he came. And if Donald Trump was going to tweet anything uh, nasty or negative, mm. uh, I th suspect it would have been in re in response to the, to the president's comments about the United States climate change. Yeah. Do you uh, think policy. he genuinely he said in that little impromptu press conference that he didn't know about those comments? Do you do you think he knew? Oh, I, I, I I think I think he definitely knew. I mean, look, there's so many advisors and people around him who would be monitoring things that are being said uh, before he arrived. Uh, I think it's quite extraordinary, actually, that he didn't take the bait uh, and make a comment. And there's been a lot of comment, a lot of commentary that I think is correct uh, about his demeanor on this trip, not just in Ireland, but elsewhere in Normandy and in the UK. He actually has been more calm and more relaxed, seemingly, uh, than he was in the United than he has been in the United States. Hmm. One wonders if, in a sense, uh, perhaps this trip was a little bit of a respite from all that's going on in Washington D.C. with the Mueller stuff still hanging out there, uh, battles with congressional Democrats, and everything else he has on his plate. Yeah. Um, this was a, a different Donald Trump, uh, with, with the exception of the tweets about uh, Sadiq Khan, perhaps. But this was a, a different Donald Trump in some senses that we than we're used to seeing. Uh, I do think it is, again, at the press conference, it is worrying um, the kind of ignorance he displayed about some of the issues that are vitally important. And again, in preparation for his arrival here, I know Leo Varadka gave him a pass on it, but in preparation for his arrival here, I mean, his advisors presumably would have been trying to get him ready. This is what you're going to get asked about, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. He just doesn't seem that interested. Yeah, I, I thought it was very interesting, Aoife, in the uh, the media briefing that Leo Varadkar gave after the meeting, that he was asked about whether there was some ambiguity about Donald Trump's understanding of how we're trying to keep our land border open mm -hmm. while he is trying to close his, despite the parallels that he might have drawn himself. And Leo Fradker's response was, Ash, you know, he's the president of the United States. There are two other hundred, 200 other countries in the world and he can't possibly be expected to keep track of all of their wheelings and dealings. But you would think that maybe after three days of understanding of having heard Brexit here, there and everywhere in the UK, mm -hmm. that he at least might have been a little bit more attuned, which, which was the basis yeah. behind my comment to Jennifer that maybe the whole thing was a bit of a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, never mind three days, like three years of talk about Brexit. I mean, can you imagine somebody like Obama turning up and not having a clue about Brexit and the you know, huge issues around the Northern Irish border and what that actually means for the country that you're visiting, what it means for the T-shirt that you're visiting, the huge issues that it's presenting for him. It's really, it's kind of embarrassing to see the US president turning up and displaying that sort of, like you say, Larry, ignorance about it. But it's, we're so used to it. The bar has been put so low in terms of what Donald Trump can and can't say um, that people just kind of have to shrug their shoulders because no matter what Leo Radker says, Donald Trump's not going to turn around and say, yeah, I actually should have studied that, should have yeah. looked a bit better into it. And I think that's that's the kind of strange situation we're dealing with. It's not We're not reporting as reporters or we're not talking as commentators about a kind of a quote unquote usual um, US president. He's yeah. really different and nobody really quite knows what to do. All we know is that Ireland needs to keep this really good relationship we have with the US and I think people are probably willing to do whatever it takes to keep that. In well, a good position. Uh, on that note, then, Jennifer, what do you make of the assertion in the Sunday World today that in fact Donald Trump could be back uh, as soon again as November for an official state visit rather than just the informal, semi private one that he's just finished? It wouldn't surprise me. It was almost like, you know, a, a puppy being, being brought to doggy daycare. They haven't gone and attacked all the other dogs, so they'd be left back again. And I do think wow, there's. That's, <laughs> that's going places. Yeah. But, but the thing is that. You know, he's realised that Michael D. Higgins is a very popular person here. Sadly, um, the, 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 the London, Khan. exactly, mm. Sadiq Khan. There's a lot of people who don't like Sadiq Khan. So the if he was to go after Michael D. Higgins to the same extent that he went after the mayor of London, there would have been war. Mm. 
And I think that even though there's a certain sense of Donald Trump that who ha- nobody has an idea what will come out of his mouth yet, or again, it's more of a case that he still has a certain understanding of there's things you say, there's things you don't say. And look, we they do get on very well with the Irish. Look, John Deasy, who is a Watford TD, mm. the, the story is he's spending even more time over in America and he is very close to Donald mm. Trump. So to be fair, we are lucky we have people in those positions who are having a quiet word and probably saying, look, leave Michael D alone because if you start rattling cages there... Mm it will be a lot more troublesome than yeah. it's worth. Um, what do we all make of the uh, the piece that uh, Carl McQuilla has written? In fact, actually, um, Gene Kerrigan has a similar piece today in the, in the Sunday Independent, but Carl McQuilla, who's debuting as a columnist in the Business Post today, has, has pointed out that it's all well and good for Ireland to try and get uppity or getting all high and mighty or lofty when Donald Trump comes, when, in fact, Ireland's performance in the likes of climate change is pretty lamentable. And equally, Larry, uh, Gene Kerrigan making the point that we can't really complain all that much about um, the US regime's or the US administration's segregation of uh, young unaccompanied minors when in fact we have our own direct provision centre which isn't really all that much different. Yeah, I, I think they're, they're both uh, fair points that are well made by both uh, McQuillia and, and Carrigan. Um, you know, and again, that's the, I think we see that, we've seen a lot of people on, on what passes for the Irish political right here make these same kind of comments. How dare you criticize Donald Trump when things are bad here, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and I think it demonstrates on one hand um, the extreme complexity and difficulty around issues like climate change and all of the political sensitivities uh, that are going to going to be have to be overcome uh, in order to make some real and genuine progress on that. Uh, and I think that that's what, what happens, unfortunately, when, when there is this kind of lecturing mode and when there is this assertion of moral superiority. Uh, and I think we get it uh, an awful lot of the time uh, from the Irish left, uh, especially when it comes to uh, people visiting from the United States. And that, that's, that does worry me because uh, at the end of the day, it might sound trite to say it, but on climate change, we are all in this together. Mm. Uh, and unless we can do something jointly without perhaps casting aspersions, uh, especially when we don't have the right to cast aspersions, yeah. that's only going to get in the way. Uh, I'm uh, a little bit mindful of... Um uh, sensitivities in the room but I want to put a quote to uh, both Aoife and Jennifer and see whether they would agree with this um, Mr Trump looked very different from what the pictures show in fact he's a fine looking man and very pleasant uh, would either of you accord with that description of Donald Trump from, from one person who met him earlier this week the, the blank faces suggest no uh, Just, we, we'll be hearing uh, I mean not something we could really say no, anything no, about well, 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 but, uh, and it, it is weird to see kind of comments where it's like him and Melania get on very well and he looks like this. it's like that's not that's really, really what, that's not what his visit is about like you're talking about a US president what did he actually do in his visit to Ireland what did he achieve what were the talks behind closed doors was the main thing he said to Leo Bradgar really like be more mean on Twitter yeah. you know I just I, I don't know I think I kind of have it up to a certain level in terms of the you know feathery comments on, on what he's saying I you want some people to actually say yeah. legitimate things and to, and to kind of uh, make him accountable for things in uh, terms of his relationship with Ireland. The vital context I should introduce before I go any further is that the person who described Trump as a fine looking man and very present, uh, pleasant was the junior minister Pat Breen who we'll be talking to in the next hour to figure out exactly what he made uh, of Donald Trump. But just to, <laughs> you got to ask to, him more about that. Uh, I, I might have to uh, but there's only limited time available. Um, speaking of limited time uh, Jennifer I'll close this topic with you. Um, I mentioned earlier that there was a general sense that this was just a, a Convenience. I mean, Donald Trump had even said before he came that Doombeg was a convenient spot to do his B&B before he was going to Normandy. And there is this sense that because the meeting was a little bit tokenistic, that it was in the airport, it wasn't really out of Donald Trump's way, that he just wanted to box this off. Um, is that really the level of engagement that we ought to be having with an American president? Or if it is going to be superficial, ought we to be happy that at least we're getting any kind of engagement at all? Well, the Irish government were right not to have it in Doombeg. 
because that would just turn into a PR stunt for the golf club. Um, they've greeted him before at Shannon. I remember Michael Noonan and the uh, Irish singer and the harpist that were there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, as as his first trip to Ireland, he he didn't cause chaos. He didn't say anything out of the ordinary. He didn't, as you already said, didn't tweet anything. So it's gone down pretty well. So, you know, if he's around again in November, you know, the the next thing would be to go to Dublin. Larry, do you think he'll be around in November? And would he go to Dublin next time? It's anybody's guess. I don't want to... I don't want to... <laughs> 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 it's a This unpredictability that I just mentioned in, in that, that Jennifer and Aoife have been talking about, in my view, make it all the more important that Ireland engage with this guy because of all of the interests that we have that are very much intertwined with happenings in the United States. So it makes engagement really, really important. And those who say we should turn away because we don't like this guy, uh, they terrify me because they're dead oh. wrong. You may not like the guy, but he is the president. And we have to just put up with come what may. Uh, while we've been discussing Donald Trump, the uh, slow bicycle race to become the new Prime Minister has been continuing in the UK with lots of people appearing on the Sunday shows. Jeremy Hunt, uh, Britain's Foreign Secretary, has, t- has said that Angela Merkel told him this week she was open to looking again at the Irish backstop, which is the sort of sentence that should just have us all just slinking back into our chairs and just hoping that Sunday will end quite quickly. We'll be talking more about that slow bicycle race uh, with Philip Webster, former political editor of the London Times, in the next hour. Uh, in the meantime, I'm still joined uh, in studio by my newspaper panel, Jennifer Kavanagh, for Barry and Larry Donnelly. Uh, there is a piece that I wanted to talk about on page 11 of the Sunday Business Post where Michael Brennan has uh, discussed uh, under a headline What's in the Stars for Leo? Um, the Taoiseach's own uh, habit for taking to Twitter from time to time albeit not the same uh, values or uh, sense of nuance as Donald Trump occasionally brings sometimes. Uh, but it's under the headline Leo Varadkar's fondness for social media and meeting big names sits well with some politicians and not with others. However, what the public thinks of it is what will matter. And, and inside in that piece uh, Michael Brennan draws parallels between Charlie Hawhey having his yacht and his horses, Bertie Ahern being a Man United fan, a Dubs fan who enjoyed a few pints of bass, and a Kenny playing air guitar at a Bruce Springsteen show. Um, Aoife Barry, do you think that Leo Varadkar is treated much differently because his may have been seen out and about is photographs with Kylie Minogue or going to see the Spice Girls and not because it's uh, the likes of Neil Diamond or Bruce Springsteen instead? I think there's definitely an element of that in it. I would be worried sometimes about the commentary there being a kind of a latent homophobia in it or unconscious bias towards him in, when people giving people giving out about him wanting to meet people like Kylie. Would it be different if it was somebody who was maybe a, you know, a figure more associated with this kind of macho masculine politics idea or if it was, you know... Um, somebody that people thought was acceptable and, and didn't show off a certain side of somebody's life and I, I really do do worry about that I think that he um, could be targeted because of that and that people might not just even realise what they're saying has the connotations that it does and mm. um, I think that he's in a very difficult position because he is a young Taoiseach but he's also a young Taoiseach in the, in the time of social media he cannot avoid being on Twitter he has to be on it he wants to show a bit of personality he wants to show what he's into but he wants to show that he's a good leader too mm. and how do you balance that you know do you want to say really boring or do you want to show hey I'm down with the kids I love Kylie I met these interesting people you're going to be criticised no matter what you do um, but there is probably moments where uh, he's done things that people weren't very happy about I mean his, his Trump tweets or Trump tweet was kind of here's a photograph of the uh, of the guest book here's what mm. tw- Trump, Trump signed this is all that I'm going to say and let's leave it at that uh, people also seem to have a bit of an issue with the fact that he uh, posed for a photograph with D Forbes at the uh, one of the episodes of Dancing with the Stars uh, on RT1 uh, I should mention by the way that Michael Brennan's jumping off point 
point and Aoife you alluded to it there a few moments ago is that uh, Varadkar did manage to fire off a tweet on his phone while he was waiting for Trump to arrive in Air Force One on the runway news had just come through to him of Fine Gael's Deirdre Clune taking the final seat in the Ireland South constituency after the counting there and that's a wrap Leo tweeted five seats out of 13 30% of the vote best European election for Fine Gael since 1984 uh, this prompted a reply from Fianna Fáil TD James Lawless who wondered shouldn't Taoiseach Leo Varadkar have been busy with Trump in Ireland and being leader of the country rather than screen go- screenshotting Fine Gael results on his phone he tweeted in response I, I know the irony of tweeting a reply I to that I think it's actually great it shows he can multitask well, there you go. Larry, like, do you think you're an admirer of Leo Varadkar's uh, Twitter multitasking? Well, I mean, look, I, I think in in many respects, I think Leo gets a, a bit of a bad rap on this. I think he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Uh, you know, it, it, and I mean, I suppose the, the, his interests and his, I'm only a few years older, but, uh, you know, I, certainly, I could probably count in two hands the number of gigs I've been to in my life. I'd be more happy in an old man's pub or playing golf. So I'm a bit different. But it, what, what I would say is he, he you know, he, it's difficult for him. But and I think he gets a better up to an extent. But um, politically speaking, the, the, the two things I would say where he has, you know, gotten a, where there might be a little bit of a pushback on him uh, is first, I think, when he was relatively new as Taoiseach uh, and the, tw- the tweet or comment about love actually when he was in Downing Street and all that. I think that that kind of gave forward uh, a little bit of an amateur hour uh, impression. Do you not think that he's just injecting a certain amount of personality to oh, it? Because I, it, I, like af- after the personality of Enda Kenny going to Springsteen gigs or Bertie Hearn being a Dublin fan or Charlie Hawhey with his yacht that if Leo Varadkar was just this automaton with no personality he'd be treated even worse I, I, I absolutely agree I'm just saying how some people might might have taken that the other thing I would say in terms of uh, his social life and his interests and all the things he does and fair play to him uh, he likes all this stuff good for him what I would say is and it, and it comes down to I suppose Oliver Callan's skits uh, of him and Murphs uh, and it is this kind of very <laughs> Dublin posh Dublin kind of uh, mm-hmm. way of, you know of what a good time is and I wonder to some extent how how that plays for him and for his party, he's the face on the posters, etc. How that plays down <coughs> the country, that's the other thing I would wonder about as well. Uh, speaking of Murphs, there is a, a wild rumour going around Leinster House that one of the easy ways to get Murphs out of the uh, the Ministry for Housing, which is uh, likely to be somewhere he's departing from in the forthcoming cabinet reshuffle, uh, is to send him off to Brussels as the next European Commissioner, which I don't think uh, big Phil Hogan uh, would like all that much. Looking forward to seeing what the satirists have to say about that. Um, on your point, Aoife, that there's uh, about possibly some of the, the, the latent homophobia that may exist in some of this. This is another passage from uh, Michael Brennan's piece. Um, there is some concern in Fine Gael that the lifestyle stories about Varadkar attending gigs by Kylie Minogue, the Spice Girls and Take That are becoming a drag on the party support. It has been mentioned a bit, says one Fine Gael source. Some critics believe that all these photo ops are contrived to boost Varadkar's image with younger voters. However, a few supporters of Varadkar believe that there is a homophobic undertone to some of the criticisms of his Kylie letter in particular. If he had been writing a letter to Jack Charlton or Alex Ferguson, the lads would have been clapping him on the back in the bar but it's different when he's Kylie when it's Kylie a gay icon and Leo the gay Taoiseach said one Jennifer your thoughts on that? Well I think that's a bit ridiculous saying it's uh, trying to get him currency with the younger voters he is a young man he's only what, 40, 40 years old Yeah, exactly and to be perfectly honest I would rather him to, to I would rather him to be seen to have a social life than going back to the old days of the golf courses and the Galway races and there's mm-hmm. a certain connotation <laughs> around all that stuff yeah. and look he's going to gigs where there's loads of people you know he's out there amongst people and look in politics no matter what you do some people are going to like you for it some people are going to hate you for it and, yeah. and, and, and at and the I, end of the day he's still being who he is and the thing is with Twitter they immediately people looking at replies to him can immediately get this kind of feedback as to what people think about what he's doing mm. whereas 20 years ago your feedback was through chatting to people or through reading opinion columns in the newspapers so whether or not you like 
want to believe in everything that Twitter commenters say or commenters' websites or whatever? Do you want to actually, you know, choose your political decisions based on their responses to political figures on Twitter? I don't know, because anyway. people are going to have all different opinions. Yeah. So I think he's, I think he, I think that's the difficult thing as well, too. He gets his immediate feedback other people didn't get in his job. Yeah, and I, I think it is good that there's an authenticity there. I, I actually do really believe that. Uh, I don't think that's a stage or I don't think it's an effort to be down with the kids or anything. I think this is who he is. The only thing I can do is speculate because the numbers aren't as good as what they were. I mean, his numbers mm. have fallen. Mm. All I can do is speculate as to whether this has played any part in that. I'm not sure it has, but what is sure is the numbers aren't as good. Now, I suppose that was inevitable in mm. a sense and the role of this, who knows? Um, I always think it's slightly forgotten in the course of all of this that when Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach, he was 38 years old. The average age of the average Irish person is 38. And if he ends up uh, exhibiting a little bit more personality than others did uh, in a more open, communicative era than ever before, then maybe it's forgotten about. Um, It's now 11.36 and Jennifer, you've been waiting politely, very long and very quietly, politely in the corner of the room, waiting to explain to us what all this kerfuffle about Rockall is all about. So in in as approachable a way as you can, explain to us why Scotland now is uh, exercising some sort of exclusivity about fishing rights around Rockall why it hasn't come up before now and what Ireland should do oh, about it I've been it. waiting 10 years to talk about Rockall <laughs> <laughs> Rockall is basically a piece of rock that is sticking out of the sea and because it's not covered by tides the UK has used it as an anchor to claim jurisdiction and territory over that part of the Atlantic okay, which is a claim that Ireland has never accepted never accepted but we have never sought to put a claim on it ourselves okay so who do we think it belongs to then we just think the it's seagulls. this un- uninhabited non-belonging yeah, no man's yeah. land and it's not just Ireland and the UK because Denmark can try and claim some of it so can Iceland because all their territorial seas you have your 12 miles but you can keep going yeah. once you don't bump into somebody else's territory because there's something called an, an ex- exclusive economic zone which yes. goes 200 kilometres off your, your shore as basically as far as you don't yeah. bump into America and they're clean that's right. the way it works out now the first thing is this is all public international law which isn't law as we know it it's law with a very heavy helping of politics okay, okay? now we always end up having spats over Rockall because what happens to be under Rockall is a load of natural resources so whoever claims the fishes gets the oil at the end of the day. That's why it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue because you've got the porcupine bank there, which we've managed to grab and everything. But it would surprise people then that we haven't ever claimed sovereignty over Rockall ourselves if there is this priceless black gold sitting underneath it. Yes, I think we're just playing a very softly, softly diplomatic game and just keep, we just kind of keep saying, look, the UK has an act where they're trying to claim it, but sure, look, you can't live in it. Oh, there is a seagulls on it. And just leave them away if they're notions. Okay. That's so, what, so what's the diplomatic le- led line. to this new confrontation now? Obviously, what's it has something to, to do with Brexit. Is pretty much Brexit because obviously one of the big problems that the Irish uh, fishermen have, the the UK fisheries industry have, is the getting the fish out of the area. That if Brexit goes to a hard border, not only will that be a land border, there will also be the sea border. Mm. So they will effectively block out Irish trawlers from that. Now at the moment, what they're doing is catching squid squid don't actually have a quota on it so you can catch as many squid as you want but it's turning into this big issue it happens every 10 years where there's always this issue over this piece of rock that's just sticking up out of the water 
and it's off again because say for example if there's a second independence referendum mm. North Sea oil fields are running out ooh pork, uh, porcupine bank there beside yeah. Rockall we'll have that to replace so it becomes oil. it becomes Scottish it, rather than British so exactly. to speak yes. um, so then when, what exactly do you think Ireland ought to do about this because we have a situation now where Scotland is basically threatening to start patrolling that area and to kick out any Irish fishermen who might be around mm-hmm. we seem to think that it's a no man's land so we should be allowed to, to fish there as much as anyone else is what exactly do we do do you think we Irish go fishermen? To Westminster, tell Westminster to tell Edinburgh to cop onto itself. Okay, and do you think that given current relationships between Dublin and Westminster, that's likely to go down too the, well? The, the chats are happening to keep going. The word chats, as we had with Donald okay, Trump. Okay, yes. <laughs> uh, Larry Donnelly, your, your thoughts on all of this and the fact that uh, it's amazing that now, three years after the Brexit referendum, that only now is the sovereignty or the apparently very valuable fish and even more valuable oil beginning to actually reach public attention at all. Yeah, I, I suppose it's yet another extraordinary aspect of uh, of Brexit and all that has come with it. Uh, obviously, there's resources there, that, as Jennifer points out, and again, she's educating us as much as anything about this issue. <laughs> yeah. um, Thank God she's here. The, Definitely. The, 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 at the end of the day, this is about money, like most things, and the access to potential resources that are there. How that's all going to shake out, uh, one doesn't know. But I was always under the impression that Ireland had asserted uh, some sort of claim to it, but that's probably yeah. because I listened to that Wolf Tone song. <laughs> <laughs> Rock Hall Act, I think it's about 1972 in the UK Parliament, where they have an piece of legislation saying that it's theirs. Yeah. And Ireland's basically going, yeah, yeah, you have it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'd lo- you, lo- you will, yeah, as they say. I- I- I'd love to see some sort of uh, private members bill coming from the opposition now where they also try to claim some sort of sovereignty over uh, Rock Hall. Aoife, any uh, thoughts on the fact that this has been so long in the offing and yet has taken uh, only a couple of days to really explode into life? Yeah, well, I thought what was interesting was Nicola Sturgeon met with Leo on the 27th of May and mm. it wasn't brought up then. So, wouldn't be too happy knowing that a couple of you know like a week or so later it's it's in the news so I think if I was him I'd be feeling like why wasn't I told about this major issue that's going to be all over the papers at yeah. the start of June so that, that is interesting this, to me It's the one thing that I find fascinating about it too I know that we're getting into a particular fisheries season like time mm. of year but we came much closer to a Brexit three months ago uh, and at that point we were looking at a hard border some sort of disorderly withdrawal from the European Union and there was no talk about the exclusivity of those fishing waters and that's before Jennifer we get into the whole row about Carlingford or Loch Foyle and the continued dispute the around who controls water there. Knows. Explain to us the, the, the problem with Loch Foyle and Carlingford Loch again. Oh, it's to do with the tidal area on the foreshore that there's, they never actually staked out who owned what bit when they went to the, to create the, the border. Yeah. So, so nobody's sure whether the waters between Donegal and Derry, which county they belong to and ultimately then which state they yes, belong to. Yes, and it has massive implications for the people who are farming there, say mussel and seafood farmers, because nobody's actually investing to put in proper resources for the aquaculture. Yeah. Right, that's a, a podcast that we'll be getting Jennifer to do with some of that points, the, uh, the fallout of public international law and international fisheries, which is uh, rock clearly, on, rock clearly on. becoming a little bit of a, a cottage industry. Uh, stay with us. More from our panel, Aoife Barry, Larry Donnelly and Jennifer Kavanagh in just a moment. Last week, I won the Tour de France. I entered the ring with Muhammad Ali. I scored the winning goal in Stuttgart in 1988 and I left an aeroplane with the Beatles. Uh, that is not the clip for some sort of text-in radio contest that we're running this morning. It is, in fact, the opening paragraph from a piece written on page eight of today's Sunday Independent by the Minister for Transport, Tourism and Sport, Shane Ross, who has been defending his uh, persistent photobombing and, in fairness, he uses the word photobombing himself uh, this week um, of photographs of Katie Taylor when she was arriving back in Dublin Airport uh, earlier this week with her five uh, lightweight heavyweight title belts um, heavyweight lightweight lightweight 
massively uncaffeinated uh, this morning. Uh, her five lightweight uh, championship belts is what I meant to say, uh, one of which is from The Ring magazine. Um, Shane Ross, uh, the general thesis of his piece in the Sunday Independent is that uh, he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't uh, because basically if he had not arranged some sort of airport reception for Katie Taylor, uh, if I'll put this to you, yeah. if he had not uh, arranged such a reception, then he would have been completely harangued saying, how come you're not celebrating our athletes? And he seems to think then that he's kind of damned if he doesn't, damned if he doesn't because he has to arrange the thing and therefore by default, of course, he's going to appear in all these photographs. Is he though? I mean, we saw the videos and I, I agree that he has to be there in the sense of he, he wants to arrange something for her. Katie is not the kind of person who's going to be asking for a big homecoming. She's very humble despite being so incredible as an athlete. But the video that went viral on Twitter that everybody was sharing showed Shane Ross would appear to be just lurking in the background making sure that he wasn't absent from any photograph or any footage mm. of Katie. It was a bit mortifying. I think what he could have done is just done an official photograph of her and him together and put that out on Twitter, put it on Facebook, whatever, or really, you know, press released it. But instead it just looked like he just couldn't be away from the limelight for two seconds. And in fairness to him, he does actually admit in it that he's a massive fan in, in this piece he wrote for Sunday Independent he admits he's yeah. a massive fan of her he calls himself a humble donut who's somebody who just hangs around to get photographs of famous people apparently I've never yeah. heard of that, this that is, phrase it's, before It's political parlance for when you have an interview with a party leader or someone else and then someone else has to stand behind them in the shot uh-huh. just to make them look a little bit less lonely Okay that so makes sense though is. And he says I love he has a few lines that are really telling he says my best friends would never call me a shy retiring type <laughs> I wanted a big celebration for her you know yes. or did he want, uh, did he want a big celebration himself, for her himself perhaps yeah. uh, he, he remarks in this piece Jennifer that he was uh, obviously he described himself as a big Katie Taylor fan and an hour after her loss in Rio which by the way was a loss that he didn't tweet about for 11 hours afterwards and then tweeted let's go Katie hope you do really well and he left the boxing ring uh, boxing ring complex sorry not the boxing ring for a minute there I thought Shane Ross (laughs) had suggested he was in the ring Uh, desolated I got into the car to head for another event suddenly on the side of the dusty Rio road I spotted two women alone pulling their suitcases in search of a taxi they were Katie and her mother Bridget I got out of the car to sympathise I swear they were close to tears polite and dignified but very alone defeat has few friends and that was the reason why he thought it was worthy of setting up the, the event in the airport on Tuesday morning which is fair isn't it? Yeah but the the opening part of that uh, piece that you read out it sounded like Sympathy for the Devil version 2 I was there when the Blitzkrieg reigned as well <laughs> that Look, the the role of the Minister for Sport and Tourism and Transport which the portfolio that he has you do need to be at these things. You do need to be celebrating when teams do well. You're also in the firing firing line when governance issues go wrong in sports as well. And previous holders of that office were also getting the same criticism, Leo Varadkar being one of them, for constantly being in all these photographs, people saying, why are you going to the hurling when she wouldn't even know what to do with hurl to begin mm-hmm. with? So would, it's, it, would it's, it not have been worse for the minister responsible for sport to somehow boycott the All Ireland hurling final? Absolutely. So again, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. But as Eva said, there is a balance to be had. I mean, they could have had that in the VIP rooms in mm. Dublin Airport, had something a little bit more, you know, formal looking. Mm. Instead of I'm literally hanging around like a comedy parrot on her shoulder. Um, there is one uh, line of admission, really, uh, Larry, in this piece for, by Shane Ross. Um, I had a choice. Go home 
or wait in the hope of delivering a few formal words of welcome. Uh, hang around Katie until the microphones were free. So I took I took the political option. Savor the moment, make it last as long as possible and hope the cameras and microphones picked up the government's recognition and maybe my own presence. Yeah, the, the piece is quite extraordinary. It's almost like a, a, a mea culpa, but a bragging mea culpa. Like it's kind of a sorry, not sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and this points to something that, that John Drennan is writing about in the Mail on Sunday today, and that's the bigger political picture yes. of all this. And that, you know, if you if you see what Fine Gael ministers are saying, uh, one says he was self-interested, now he is playing eccentric. Uh, and another says, our concern is that he may be provoked into doing something daft in a desperate attempt at self-preservation. If we wind up being victims of the madness of Ross, no one will be laughing then. So all of this behavior, as well as I think his single-minded focus on the Judicial Council bill, which has taken up uh, a tremendous amount of his time, to, yeah. despite the fact that it's a million miles yes. away from his It's taken up a lot of Charlie Flanagan's time, but not necessarily exactly. his own. And this obviously has Fine Gael, uh, very, very nervous that they're in some ways dependent uh, upon this guy. Uh, so I, I'd say there's a lot of uneasy fe- people within Finnegale knowing that this is the person they have to deal with. And I think that that element of desperation might be particularly felt now that he seems to have lost two of his councillors in the, in the local elections. Mm. Uh, so things aren't going well. And when, when they're not going well, uh, you re- resort to desperation. You do things like writing this crazy piece. So obviously, uh, it's not easy times for Fina Gale on that front. Uh, this is a question that I never thought I'd be asking, particularly in a couple of weeks after Fianna Fáil had uh, again emerged as the most popular party at local government, winning a higher percentage of the vote and more seats on local authorities than any other party in the country. Uh, a headline on page two of the Sunday Business Post, Bring Back Bertie, says Fianna Fáil ward boss after he quits after shocking poll results. A defeated Fianna Fáil candidate has called for the return of former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern to revive the party's fortunes in Dublin Central. Fianna Fáil was the dominant force in the constituency when Ahern was there but the party has had no seat in Dublin, Can- Dublin Central for the past eight years. Fianna Fáil's Dublin Central chairman Brian Mohan who lost out in the local elections is resigning from the party and says it's time for the party to allow Bertie Ahern to return. Jennifer, your thoughts? When the last I saw Bertie I thought he was in a cupboard for, for an ad. <laughs> you've, you've missed all of his rehabilitation then as a Brexit commentator. <laughs> But there, there is a fear talking to some people that I would have known of that would, would have been quite entrenched in uh, Dublin Central that there's a fear that if they don't control there they're never going to get more power or get back into government. Mm. That's what some of them think. But I would say that yes, Bertie has done a good job of what he's been doing with Brexit because he's a lot of top level knowledge on say the Good Friday Agreement he sure. was there when the thing was negotiated whatever else you think from politically mm-hmm. but I do think that when people see Bertie they see the the situation that led to the economic crash yeah. that you know spend all around you um, like he got out he put Brian Cowan then in the position and when they were even talking about, about bringing him out to run for the presidential election it was literally a groan was heard collectively from the people of Ireland going, not him again. Which I think might have been, uh, Aoife, why you were silently giggling when I was reading out that intro. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting, this idea of looking back to the past and looking at a figure like Bertie and presuming that he's going to be the person who can somehow rehabilitate Fianna Fáil like he rehabilitated his, his image in the last couple of years due to, like you were saying there, his commentary on Brexit. Why aren't people looking to the future and what they can actually do to bring Fianna Fáil into 2019? I mean, the guy here, um, Brian Mann, who wants to quit Fianna Fáil or has quit Fianna Fáil, he was somebody who brought a case against gender quotas in politics. That's not a very 2019 move. You know, you want to actually try and look at t- towards how 
why is a party not doing well? Why are people not voting for you? What, why do people think you're doing something wrong? And how can you do to rehabilitate that? Not let's get somebody in who's got a very mixed reputation and a very negative reputation in some quarters mm. to try and somehow um, change the fortunes of Fianna Fáil. I just think it's really backwards looking. They should be looking forward. Uh, not meaning to, to kick a man when he's down, but it is pointed out in this Business Post piece that Brian Mohan himself managed to get 140 votes in the North Inner City Ward in last month's local elections, which I think possibly had a, a quota of close to 1,000 votes. So it wasn't really in, in the running for any of those seats at all. Um, Larry, on, on a serious note, what would uh, Bertie Hearn be able to offer Fianna Fáil? I mean, presumably he wouldn't be a candidate himself. So what exactly do you think he could, in theory, bring to the table? Uh, to be frank, I, I don't, in, in terms of electoral success, I don't think he could bring very much because uh, there's an old adage uh, that I'm acquainted with uh, that uh, there's nothing deader than yesterday's politician. Um, people do, people <laughs> wow. do, people do, people do move on. Um, but that having been said, I think there's a sentiment, and I'm very sympathetic to that sentiment. Uh, first, that Bertie has been an invaluable voice in terms of Brexit and the process as somebody who's been down that road before. Uh, I think he's played a very important role. And I know that uh, individuals in the government consult with him on a regular basis, and there's probably nobody better situated or, or experienced to do that. Mm. And I also think that. But that, that's with a policy head on, though, not necessarily with an electoral or partisan head that, That's That's why I made the point I did. I also think there's a sentiment out there within the Fianna Fáil grassroots, and I, and I, I, think, it's, I think it's reasonable, uh, is that Bertie got a lot of, an awful lot of blame for everything. Everything was put on his shoulders, and the reality is that the situation was much bigger than one person, and perhaps his policies, some of the things he said, might have been regrettable, but this was bigger than all of that, and I think there's some element of trying to rehabilitate him for all the good things that he did, the Good Friday Agreement being one of them. 